R.J. Lonsdale's Thin Air podcast anthology proudly presents Long Cold Night by Alan Vaughn Elston. Listen to the wind. Drifting past your senses is the fuel that fires the imagination. Close your eyes and breathe deeply. Consider the element that floods into your lungs, the very same substance that long ago fanned an ancient spark, ignited by a primeval author, chiseling veiled petroglyphs across a dim cave wall. Carried on a breeze spanning eons, it was the breath that gave rise to dinosaurs, grew papyrus for paper, and dried vibrant oils brushed over canvas. It has since walked on the surface of the moon. It fondly recollects a childhood memory, violently reshapes the landscape of history, and blows away the fog surrounding the unknown. It rushes by in a heartbeat, inhaled at first, exhaled at last. One moment here, the next, gone, into thin air. The skipper handed to David, the cabin boy, a heavy brass key. In the roar of the gale, David failed to catch the order which came with it. So Skipper Quain, cupping palms to his blood-raw face, bellowed it again. Boy, take this key and let those men out of the brig. Yes, sir. A polar breath with teeth like needles was numbing David. And now a great wave thumped him to the deck. He slid down the ice-crusted slope of it to a stop against the boots of men at the davits. All hands but four were here in a huddle, at midship, standing by to lower boats. There was no chance of that just now, for the deck was an oblique wall, and the ship, with her steering gear smashed and her sea anchor gone, was driving in a crazy list down the wind. Between two legs, David saw a berg-pitted sea bulge until it seemed to bump the sky. He saw a floating island of ice, chisel sharp, riding it. Look alive, boy, shouted the skipper. Let those men out of the brig. The storage room, which the Norwal used for a brig in an emergency of mutiny or murder, was aft under the poop deck. David held tightly to the brass key as he scrambled and slid and crawled toward it. His storm coat, two sizes too large, made him look like a child in the garb of an old man. He was slight for his 13 years and almost fragile. Now, ice was blinding him and he sobbed with cold. The iron ladder seemed to weld freezingly to his mittens as he climbed down to the afterdeck. Spray pelted him. Each swell hoisted him to dizzy heights, then dropped him into fathomless depths as he staggered toward the poop. Even a murderer mustn't be left to drown like a rat in a locked brig. In an iron-bound door of three-inch oak, he inserted the key and turned the lock. 
Men inside were pounding frantically on that door. When it opened, they emerged and stared wildly at the listing ship. And David, because he was trained to take good care of any article entrusted to him, dropped the brass key into a pocket of his coat. All hands are at midship, he piped to the four prisoners, standing by for a chance to lower boats. The skipper says, A great lurch of the whaler flung them all five in a heap at the open door of the brig, and once more between two legs, David saw a gigantic island of ice, chisel sharp, riding a bulge high above him. Then the ship was up, bumping the sky, and the berg was deep in a valley. They seemed to fall broadside toward the blade of it. The crash deafened David. The impact, he knew vaguely, was at midship, where the crew stood huddled, and where the sharp edge of a million tons of ice now sliced through the Norwal like a knife through cheese. Stranded, broken, and run aground in the midst of an encroaching precipice of ice, the good ship Norwal is a vessel of death. Death not solely resulting from the catastrophic event that has just now transpired, but also a death most sinister. A murder committed in cold blood that has resulted in the incarceration of four men, suspects that were, mere moments ago, locked safely away in the ship's brig. Then again, out of mercy in the face of disaster, Skipper Quain has ordered that these men be set free, and David Jones, a lowly cabin boy, holds the key. An iron-bound oaken door has just been opened, and a dire set of circumstances set in motion. Lost beneath the lingering shroud of a long, cold night, with a killer in their midst, Who's to say if all hands that remain might now be cut down one by one, each in their turn gasping for one last icy breath of thin air? The smoke and stench of the room would have stifled a newcomer, but David by now was fairly used to it. He lay stupidly in his upper bunk, listening to the talk of the men. Come another month, we sight sunlight, Casper guessed, but Groton, the shaggy giant, flouted him. Year a month too far leeward, mate, Groton argued. Call it the last week of February, I say, and set your sights from there. They debated the date drearily, while Diker riffled the cards. The long eel of a man, Hale, stared hollowly at the fire and said nothing. David lay wretchedly in his sleeping bag, above and to the left of them. By the light of an evil-smelling lamp and through a blue haze of smoke, he could see each and all of the four who were keeping with him this vigil through an arctic night. The hut was of ship's planking torn from wreckage on the beach. Smoke arising in a bluish fog constantly filled the upper half of the room. From there, it sifted out through a score of six-inch holes, eave high and cut for that purpose. In the lower half of the room, one could breathe well enough and see when the oil lamp was lighted. There was fuel aplenty, 
from wrecked wood and driftwood strewn along the beach. There were two barrels of salt beef and a litter of other supplies salvaged from that part of the Norwal which had grounded not far offshore. And there was one tool, an axe. David could see the axe now, leaning against a wall. It was a fire axe. Using it for both hammer and blade, they had fashioned this refuge. Put always the sight of the axe frightened David. A fantastic irony that it should be here, because aboard the Norwal, that same axe had been employed as a tool of murder. The sharp blade of it had laid low the Norwal's mate. Now it was here, and so, though unidentified as yet, was the murderer himself. Three things were most needed when the sea had delivered them half frozen to this Arctic beach, food, tools, clothing. So in a calm at low tide, Groton and Hale had ventured out on a raft to the grounded wreck. They had returned with salt beef, oil, bedding, also with an axe and a sea chest. The chest, they said, was the only box of clothing left in that shamble of wrecked cabins. And here was another grim jest, for the brass plate on the chest bore the name of the murdered mate. The mate's corded shore cap was now cocked on Groton's shaggy head. All of them but Hale wore underwear and garments from that chest. Diker, the rat-faced slight man, wore the mate's shore coat. What hour is it, lad? With the question, Groton turned his leonine head toward David. His voice was soft, yet his water-blue eyes, set too close together, always filled the boy with vague distrust. In build, Groton was splendid. His long yellow mustaches and his longer yellow beard gave him the look of a heroic Viking. Twelve o'clock, sir, David said, after he had squirmed to bring a watch out of the sleeping bag. His was the only timepiece among them. Noon, the cadaverous Hale murmured. Midnight, Casper argued. He seldom agreed with anyone. But what's the damn difference? Right you are, mate, Groton said. What's the damn difference? The only time as counts is whaling time. That'll be June, or maybe the Ebo May. They'll pick us up then, if we don't rot a scurvy. Hale turned his bony head to stare piercingly at Groton. Hale was skin and bones. His eyes were like the sockets of a skull. This and his frightful pallor made him to David the least companionable of them all. Yet he was the only clean-shaven man among them. The mate's chest had provided a razor, which Hale alone used. The man's hair was salt and pepper, half black, half white. It seemed to David that the number of white hairs increased with the passage of each hour. She'll fetch plenty of difference to the wrong one among us, Hale said dourly, and David understood that well enough. It was a thought he had shivered with through all these sunless months. Rescue was fairly certain at whaling time, and it would make plenty of difference to the mate's murderer. Which one of the four that was, only the murderer could tell. Known motive for the crime, there was none. Yet that guilt lay among these four was definitely certain. For all others had, at the instant of the crime, been assembled forward in a common presence with Skipper Quain. David's dull gaze turned away from the axe and from the group huddled about the mate's chest. That brought it upon the weirdest irony of all. For he saw, directly across from him, a stout, 
iron-bound door of three-inch oak. Intact with lock and hinges, they had salvaged it from the wreck. It was the door of the Norwals brig. For want of another, they had built it into this hut. Now, locked in by insufferable cold, these men were still immured behind that same brig door. David's fingers touched the heavy brass key still in his pocket. The skipper's last brusque order came vividly back to him. Take this key and let those men out of the brig. The boy tossed restlessly for a while longer. Then he crawled out of the sleeping bag. The two small hearthstones which he kept in there, one for each of his feet, were quite cold. He took them down to the soft ash at the hearth's edge. Blast a short deck, I say. Casper complained petulantly. He threw his frayed cards down and stood up. They had been using a 51-card deck found in the mate's chest. Lend a hand, Davy. Groton purred. A bellow would have suited him better, David thought. See if you can turn up that missing card. If it's anywhere, the boy said. It's in the chest. Right ye are. Stand away from the chest, bullies, while the lad takes another poke through it. It's the Jack of Diamonds. David raised the lid and searched through the chest without success. But at a bottom corner, his eye fell upon a small, black, leather-bound book. He had noticed it before, but had given it no attention. Now, a word of guilt lettering on the cover caused him to take the book up. It was a diary. Kept a log, did he? Snarled Diker. Groton's silky voice broke the silence. Well, what if he did keep a log? I know what you're thinking. You're thinking maybe he named the bully what done him in. But how could he? Casper blinked. Yeah, how could he? He couldn't very well log that trick. That's right. Diker wheezed. When that axe dropped him, he never moved again. Maybe we better keep it. Groton said calmly. Hand it over, lad. Yes, sir. David held forth the diary. No, you don't. Casper protested querulously. If one looks, we all looks. He snatched the booklet and they all crowded shoulder to shoulder with him. It was an ordinary diary, briefly recording the weather day by day and little else. Page after page gave no hint of anything menacing in the mate's life. We're reading too far back, Casper said hoarsely. He was increasingly nervous, and David saw his hand shake as he turned another page. Here was merely recorded the sailing of the Norwal on her last voyage out of Boston. But on the next page came a startling comment. One of this new crew looks a little like Bart Schantz, who kept bar at a New Bedford waterfront grog shop. Won't report him to the skipper till I'm sure. If he is Schantz, New Bedford wants him for killing a longshoreman. Diker piped shrilly. That lets me out, it does. Never did haul my boots into that there port. I didn't. Me neither, mate, Groton offered. Their protest to David seemed overly prompt. I've been there, Casper admitted. But my name never was Schantz. Schantz, Hale corrected solemnly and made no denial himself. Casper licked his thumb and turned another page. For day on day, during a voyage north, the mate had made no further mention of Bart Schantz. Finally, they came to the last entry. It was dated the night before the wreck, the night on which the mate had been killed with an axe. The final notation read, Going to find out whether that man's Bart Schantz. He's down the aft passage right now, polishing brass and glass on the fire kit. I'll just drop by and sing out, Hello, Schantz. 
and watch his face. That was all. Yet instantly, the entire motive of the crime became clear. Diker squealed. It weren't me. I didn't. You say you didn't, you stinking rat. Groton cut in softly. And so do I. But somebody did. Hale said somberly. I, somebody. Somebody has kept bar at New Bedford. And when we gets back to New Bedford? Casper shrilled. They can point the man out. The blonde giant, Groton turned with an easy patronage to David. Well, lad, it's clear you didn't do it. So you're the right un to keep this book. When the Whalen fleet comes, turn it over. They can take the four of us in irons to New Bedford and hang whoever as turns out to be Shaunce. He handed the booklet to David. But David wasn't at all sure that the murderer wasn't Groton himself. This yellow-bearded giant, as well as any other, might have been scouring the brass of that fire kit. Accosted suddenly as Shantz, his big ham-like hand might easily have smashed the glass and snatched the axe from it. They had found the mate in the passage, directly under the smashed frame. David then looked toward the skull-shaped face of Hale. Hale, from the first, had been haggard and nervous. Or Diker, the chinless Diker with the red, ratish eyes, the eyes of a criminal, they might well be. Or Casper. Not so likely Casper, David thought. Casper was stubborn and ill-tempered, but not repellent like Diker, nor so somberly mysterious as Hale, nor with Groton's suggestion of silky deceit. Beyond them all, David saw the axe, saw it, and shivered. He who used it once might use it again. At the rear of the room were four bunks, two above and two below. In an opposite corner was a hammock of green cord, preferred by Casper. Casper now withdrew toward his hammock. Diker followed him there, stood confidentially close, and whispered into his ear. Groton picked up the axe. With it, he faced Hale. Hale shrank back. His hair seemed to grow whiter by the minute. Groton eyed him derisively, but his voice addressed Diker. Take care. As scurvy don't get you for the hangman, Diker. Shouldering the axe, Groton then removed the oaken bar from its brackets across the door. He drew the door open, stepped out, and closed it behind him. Blast him! Diker screamed. Let's have a look, mates, and see what he's up to. He opened the door and Casper and Hale followed him in the wake of Groton. David was left alone in the hut. He was sick with fear, more frightened now than at any time since the Norwal's wreck. Until now, it had been merely a case of the mate's murder, and that, by itself, could never have been solved. But the new Bedford case was an old one already solved. Exposure of the guilty man was certain once he was arraigned at New Bedford. Bitter cold was sifting in through the open door. David drearily put on his cap and sea coat, stepped out into the moonlight, and closed the door behind him. Down the beach, the boy now heard sounds of chopping. Dimly in the moonlight, he sighted Groton, standing like a great golden Viking astride of a log drifted here from some faraway shore. To the north stretched a limitless ice pack. In all other directions, the frozen hills reared in cones of ghostly white. Atop the nearest of those cones, David made out Hale, standing at the base of a mast which was upright in the snow there. He was gazing forlornly upward at a wind-ripped banner, 
a distress signal directly after the wreck last fall they had placed it there. And once every 24 hours, Hale made an excursion to that mast. Sometimes he climbed halfway up it and clung there, staring out across the ice pack. Clutching his grotesquely misfitting sea coat about him, David now joined the group on the beach. In a little while, he took an armload of cut wood to the hut, stacked it outside, and returned for another. Hale somberly took a turn with the axe. Then Casper took the axe. Then Diker. Diker, for all his slight build, had arms like steel springs. When the log was cut and stacked, they all went inside the hut and replenished the fire. Diker stood the axe just inside the door. He kept his reddish eyes on it, though. And the others, too. That single tool of destruction became like a sixth presence in the room. For long and terrible hours, they sat silently in the glow of the hearth, each man hugging his own thoughts. Their breaths drifted out like blue vapor. When David's head began to nod drowsily, he retrieved his two warm sleeping stones from the hearth ashes. He climbed to his upper bunk and put them in his sleeping bag. Then, shedding only coat and boots, he crawled in himself. Often the drone of the other's talk lulled him to sleep, but this time there was no talk. David could hear an occasional cracking of the ice pack offshore and nothing more. It was a merciless sound, but not half so grim as the silence of the hut. That silence fairly screamed aloud the menacing presence of a murderer. Always it brought before David's eyes the vision of the axe. Hours later, David awoke with a start. In the cold gloom, he saw the hearth fire, now burned down to a bed of orange embers. Casper's blocky form sagged in the hammock, and a snore just under his own bunk told him that Groton was there. Neither Hale nor Diker was in sight, but the door was barred on the inside, so David knew that all inmates were abed, yet some detail of the room was wrong. It was the axe, or rather, the fact that the axe was gone. Casper stirred in the hammock and growled. What time is it, boy? David's voice, answering that it was five o'clock, aroused the others. Diker climbed out and went directly to the oil lamp. After lighting it, his eyes immediately sought the axe. His voice came like the bark of a dog. Who took it? Took what? Casper asked hoarsely but he was already out of his hammock, staring at the place where the axe should be. Hale came slipping like a wraith from his upper berth. I who took it, and what for? His gaze followed Casper's. Groton was out now, towering above all of them. It's yes took it, you big bully bum. Diker shrilled at Groton. It's hidden his bunk. I'll stake ye. He's biding a chance to blow down the whole blasted crew. Groton's big hand pushed him to a sprawl. Then, facing Hale and Casper, he said, Aye, I'm the one as took it. And you're Razor too, Hale. What I'm not taking is chances. Search his bunk! Diker screamed. Chances are what? Hale asked. His question seemed false and flat. Chances are murder, that's what? Groton said. His close-set eyes stared at Diker, and his voice was dangerously soft. 
So I walks out on the ice pack with that axe and razor and I drops him through a seal hole into the sea. He's a blasted liar. Search his bunk. Diker screamed again. He shot over there and began clawing through the bedding on Groton's bunk. He found nothing. The axe, so help me, is at the bottom of the sea. Groton swore. David wanted to believe him. He wanted desperately to feel forever free from the menace of that axe. Yet the boy could not quite bring himself to trust Groton's water-blue eyes nor his silky voice. Who elected you to take charge of that axe? Casper bawled. Elected myself. Groton said, and tamped tobacco in his clay pipe. Why? Because I don't aim to get blowed down in my sleep. One of your three bullies is twice a killer, and sure to go scot-free if... Hale licked his thin lips. If what? He asked. If he's the only man of the crew alive at Whalen time. Groton said, that point to David was bleakly clear. The murderer, having eliminated all of his companions, could say to rescuers that he alone had survived the Norwal's wreck. They would have no reason to doubt him. They would know nothing at all about the murder of the mate. Nor would they have any reason to present the lone survivor for inspection at New Bedford. The man could simply disembark at the first port and drop out of sight. So ye chucked it in the sea, did ya? Decker, insolent and apparently incredulous, sidled toward Groton. I did. They bickered for hours while David looked on dully from his bunk. At last, he slept fitfully, dreaming strange and terrible dreams. When he awoke, the cabin was dark and the others were abed. He crawled down, lighted the lamp, and began to set out tins of salt beef on the chest. In a little while, Groton aroused and joined him. Groton's lids were puffy and his face was swollen. Kneeling close by the boy, he whispered, Davy, keep your eye on Dyker. David could see Diker sleeping in the bunk under Hales. Hale, he noticed, was wide awake, staring ghoulishly down at them. The horrible depths of those eyes made David shiver. Suddenly, Hale's lips moved. They made no sound. But David could read the soundless syllables formed there. They said, Watch Groton. And again, David shivered. How could he watch them all through the stretch of this northern night? A little later, when Hale was up, the man whispered in his ear, It's the big un, lad. Never sleep till he sleeps. The rattle of pans aroused Diker. As he came out, bleary and sour, Groton said to David, Rouse up the squarehead, lad. And David went to awake Casper. But Casper did not hear his call or feel his touch. A green cord had been torn from the man's hammock. It was noosed tightly about his throat. Casper had been garroted in his sleep. For 60 hours after they buried Casper in the snow, David did not shut an eye, nor did Groton, nor Hale, nor Diker. One of the three had killed Casper, and those three sat eyeing one another. In turn, each tried to engage the confidence of David. Keep your weather eye on Diker, lad, Groton whispered, aside. Hale's our man, boy. Diker professed to believe. Watch him. It wasn't Hale, David thought, unless Hale was mad. By the end of 60 hours, all of them were nearly mad, even Groton. But most of all, 
Hale. Groton's the one. Hale's lips moved in maudlin mutterings, which first accused Groton, then Diker. Diker, I say. There was only a little pepper now in the salt of Hale's hair. A grim witness, death itself had acquitted Casper. Of these other three, one indisputably was Shantz. Shantz, easily convictable at New Bedford if one single voice survived to tell the story. But that one voice would not survive. Shantz, sane or mad, planned to garrote them all one by one in sleep. The answer was no sleep. With David up, Groton, after 60 hours, risked a wink of sleep, but only a wink. Then he came out, haggard and shaggy, for a session of solitaire on the mate's chest. His voice asked strainedly, What time is it, lad? David delved into his pocket. There he felt the brass key. It was a key to that oaken door, the brig door, and they did not know he had it. David kept that secret jealously. These men were in a brig, and he, David, had the key. Constantly that thought recurred to his sick and weary mind. But what good was it? What use could he make of the key? David drew forth the watch and opened it. Eight o'clock. He said. Morning. Hale muttered. Night, mate. Groton corrected. It's all night and it's all hell. Diker shrieked. Hell for somebody. When we gets into New Bedford. Groton agreed silkily. By the end of the week, a light was winking outside at each noontime. Winter dawn was breaking and Hale was slowly going mad. Through long hours, he would lie abed sobbing, screaming sometimes, always complaining. It racked the nerves of David. It ragged the patience of Groton and of Diker until they cursed the sick man. Hale refused to eat. No! Time and again, David took food to him and was shrieked away. I'm not hungry! Finally, when David took him a cup of hot tea, the man seized his wrist and tried to bite it. David fell back in horror. He saw froth on Hale's lips. He called to Groton. They strapped Hale down. Then, 40 hours later, he died, mad and starved, in his bunk. It don't prove as he wasn't Sean's lad, Groton said, after Hale was buried in the deep snow beside Casper. But I doubt if he was, Davy. Watch Diker. Then Diker slipped up and whispered, Watch Groton. If we both go sleeping while he's up, we're done for, boy. David tried desperately to believe that all guilt was now dead with Hale, but he couldn't. He was far from trusting either of the two left with him. When drowsiness forced him to sleep, a horned imp who was diker and a beast with the shaggy head of Groton pranced with cloven hoofs through his dreams. Drowsiness always won, and many times David slept soundly. Generally, with both men awake, one to protect him against the other. But in the end, David awoke from a deep sleep to find that Diker was also sleeping soundly, while Groton sat smoking his clay pipe and playing solitaire on the mate's chest. I reckon that proves it, Davy, huh? Groton purred, yet even now David wasn't sure. He looked out. Noon light blushed well down the sky. The ice pack was breaking. More than a month must pass before they could hope for the whalers. More than a month was plenty of time for Shantz, if Shantz was still in this hut, to eliminate one man and a boy. Twice more in the next week, 
David emerged from his dreams to find Groton awake and Diker asleep. Never once did he find them the other way. Not one instant would Groton sleep while Diker was awake. One day, when light was half a day long, Diker complained that his gums hurt. The next morning, he refused to leave his bunk. He was sick, he said. Groton came over for a look. I was afeard of that, he whispered to David. He's down a scurvy. Under the scourge of scurvy, Diker weakened fast. The sweat of a fever bathed him, and his gums were swollen frightfully. His eyes became sockets, deep and black. Bad job it didn't happen afore he killed Casper, lad, Groton said. Time he's up if he ever gets up. The whalers will be dropping anchor offshore. Yet still David wasn't sure. Now, instead of the crackling groans of the ice pack, he could hear constantly the swishing of waves. Day was chasing night out of the north. Every hour, Diker weakened. The snags of his yellow teeth loosened in his head. By then, he was delirious. He shouted for the cabin boy and for Skipper Quain. He begged Quain to let him out of the brig. Chance was in there with him, he swore, and Chance was choking him with a cord. He'll be out all right come morning, Groton guessed. Diker did leave the brig next morning, dead of scurvy. They buried him in a deep snowdrift well apart from Casper and Hale. We dasn't put him longside, two honest seamen, Davy, Groton decreed. He's Shantz, I say. You know that for certain, don't you? Yes, sir. But David didn't know it at all. Hand over at mate's notebook, Davy. Groton's voice was again silkily persuasive. And we'll log it all nice and shipshape. David's numb hand took the mate's diary from his pocket and gave it to Groton. Groton had the stub of a pencil. On the first blank page of the book he wrote, Seaman Diker, alias Schontz, killed Seaman Casper, then died of scurvy himself. Hale went crazy mad, Seaman Groton and cabin boy standing by to sight whaling craft. That logs its shipshape, Davy, Groton said. Then carelessly, he dropped the booklet into his own pocket. The man's yellow-bearded smile, to David, seemed sly and deceitful. And why didn't he give the book back to David? A feeling grew over the boy that Shantz did not lie under snow, that Shantz stood alive and six feet three, wearing the smile of a great golden wolf in the name of Groton. But if Groton was Shantz, why did he spare David? That question preyed upon David for another long week of the vigil. One answer was that Groton was not Shantz, and that all menace had perished with either Diker or Hale. Another was that Groton was merely biding his time. David was useful to him as keeper of the fire and servant of all work. David was someone to talk with. Two, the boy was as weak as a kitten and might die naturally as had Diker and Hale. In any case, Groton, on sighting a sail, could in one brief moment dispatch and entomb this last companion. Yet David was never sure. The hand of fear clutched him through every hour Groton was awake. When Groton slept, his dread almost left him, for Groton always snored. The snores were convincing. No fiend or murderer, David thought, could rest as easily as that. It was while Groton slept one day that David made a discovery. He was going through the mate's chest in search of a new wick for the oil lamp. He found the wick, and he found something else. 
It shook out of an old sea boot. David picked up the missing and 52nd card of the mate's playing deck, a jack of diamonds. It was oddly disfigured. There was no writing, but someone using a yellow pencil had sketched upon this knave of diamonds a flowing beard, two long yellow mustaches, and had crowned him with a golden shock of hair. That was the record on the card. That and nothing more. The pictured knave in no way resembled Groton. Yet the face was blondly hirsute, and the suggestion of it shocked David. His wits grappled with it. Slowly they erected a vision of the mate, seated in his Norwal cabin, playing solitaire with this deck, and wondering absently about the seamen who might be Shantz. What would Shantz look like with a yellow beard? So wondering, the mate's eye might have dropped to the knave of diamonds lying face up before him. And so wondering, he might have picked up a yellow pencil and sketched thereon mustaches, a shock of hair and a beard. David, for a moment, was shocked into a panic of conviction. Groton was shots, and if so, David was doomed. Then it came to him that this card was in no wise conclusive. Perhaps Casper or Hale or Diker had found the card here in the chest, unmarked, and had used it subtly to cast suspicion upon Groton. In a turmoil of conflicting doubts, David put the card in his inner pocket. He said nothing about it to Groton. There was another week then of terrifying vigil. Each noon, Groton went to the mast, climbed it, peered long and hopefully to see. He grew silent and fretful, seldom speaking to David. The boy gave him a wide berth. Always he waited until the man was abed and snoring before ascending to his own bunk. And always before retiring, David took two warm stones from the hearth and put them in his sleeping bag. Most of the time, the weather was still bitterly cold. The boy was digging his stones from the ashes when he found a square of scorched leather there. It came from ashes close to the glowing embers of the fire. It was half of the front leather cover belonging to the mate's diary. Groton had burned the record. From that instant, David's fear of him knew no reservation. Groton, he was sure, was none other than Shantz. He looked now toward the man's bunk. Groton lay there with his eyes closed, but he wasn't snoring. And it seemed to David that one of those eyelids quivered. Was Groton really asleep? Had he observed David retrieving the scrap of leather? The boy hastily concealed the scrap in his pocket. Then, in a tremble, he went on with the business of getting his sleeping rocks from the fire. He took them to his upper bunk and put them in the bag. Crawling in the bag himself, David resolved not to sleep until he heard snores from Groton. When these came, he did sleep. It was the cessation of those sounds which presently awakened him. So painfully had he attuned his senses to them that he had become like a train man who dozes with the rumble of the wheels and yet awakens when the train stops. David awakened but did not open his eyes. He lay quite still, giving strained attention to the silence from the bunk below. Then he heard Groton get out of bed and cross the room in sock feet. The cat-like stealth of that tread petrified him. The boy opened his eyes. Groton had lighted the lamp 
casting a shapeless shadow of himself on the wall opposite. The shadow moved like the living silhouette of a monster, not toward David's bunk, but toward the green-corded hammock which had been Casper's. There it stopped, and there the hands of the shadow reached forth and broke off a length of green cord. The hands slowly fashioned that cord into a noose, a noose like the one which had strangled Casper. David screamed. He sat upright in his bunk. Over there, by the hammock, stood Broughton. Guilt seared the man's face. One hand was behind him, holding the cord from David's sight. His quick question came with the smoothness of silk. What's the matter, Davy? Nightmare? The boy nodded frantically. Groton mustn't know that he, David, knew the truth. The man's eyes bored at him suspiciously. What did you dream about, Davy? About Diker. The lie choked desperately from the boy's lips. He saw that Groton half believed it. His eyes narrowed, gleaming with an indecision which David fearfully understood. Should he deal with the boy now, Groton was debating, or later? A queer, tight smile peeped from the yellow beard. Well, skin down and dish out a mess of rations. He stooped, picked up his boots, put them on, and strode out of the hut. When he was well gone, David came feverishly to life. He stumbled to the door, the stout iron-bound door of three-inch oak, and slammed it shut. He dropped the oaken bar in place across the brackets. When Groton came back, he would have to crash in. That he could do, using a log to batter with, but it would take time. David, with his temples throbbing, now climbed to an upper bunk and peered out through an air hole. He could see Groton out there, climbing the hill toward the signal mast. He saw the man climb the mast, going halfway up to the distress rag, waving at its top, and peering from under cupped palm toward the sea. Then he heard a hoarse shout. Groton slid to the ground. He jumped up and down there, waving his arms frantically toward the sea. David slipped to the floor and crossed to the seaward wall of the hut. He climbed to the top of the cut wood there and peered through another air hole. What he saw shocked him with ecstasy. A schooner was out there, on the open sea. She was far offshore yet, but her bowsprit was pointed this way. The thrill weakened David to a wisp of dizziness. His legs were like grass stems as he slid down to the floor. His first thought was to get out and run. Then he realized that he would be safer here for a little while with that barred door between him and Groton. Groton, with no chopping tool, could hardly batter his way in during the brief time at his disposal. So David left the door barred. Then he climbed again to the landward peephole and looked out. What he saw plunged him into panic, for Groton, after all, did have a chopping tool. David was just in time to see him dig it out of a snowdrift. It was the axe, the Norwal's fire axe, the same deadly tool under which the mate had been cut down aboard ship. Groton had it in hand now. With it, he was plunging toward this house. Irrevocably, it proved the treachery of Groton, who had sworn it was dropped in the sea. David saw him come on with it now like a mad beast, straight toward the door of this hut. When the door resisted his push, 
a low rumble of surprise escaped Groton. Blast you, David. Then David, peering through the small high hole, saw slyness invade his eyes. He heard a voice, silkily persuasive, call out, Open the door, Davy, lad. David made no answer. Groton lifted the axe and crashed it into the door. The blade bit deep. Back the axe went over his shoulder. Down it came again with a titan's blow on the door. David, through the peephole, watched him swing those blows. He heard the splinter of oak. Again and again the axe chopped at the door. David slipped to the floor and stood with a fist pressed against his mouth. Groton, he knew, could hack his way into this refuge. Then, a little later, he could confront rescuers as the Norwal's sole survivor. The thuds of the axe now came in rhythmic sequence. David, breathless, listened to them, flinched at each blow as though it struck his own sore heart. At ten-second intervals, the blows were like the tom-tom of a drum. Slowly but surely, Groton was chopping his way through the door. Then an inspiration came to David. The door was expected to resist the onset of an axe, but if the descending axe, with all of Groton's power behind it, should meet no resistance, then... David's trembling hand was on the crossbar. A blow fell. A splinter spanked his face and he saw almost an inch of the axe itself showing through a split. Then the axe was tugged free. David quickly removed the oaken bar and laid it on the floor. Groton, if he knew, could now simply turn the knob and enter at his ease. But Groton didn't know. Inevitably, he would strike again with the axe. David's own hand gripped the doorknob. The axe at this instant, he guessed, was poised over Groton's shoulder. A crushing blow would come. David timed it with his own heartbeats. There must be nothing here to meet that blow. Surely the axe was descending now. With a sudden jerk, David pulled the door wide open. Axe and Groton came headlong in. Empty space met that final fierce chop of Groton. His great body came toppling in, and he sprawled face down on the floor. In a flash, David had the axe, and was outside with it. In the same flash, a brass key came from his pocket. He slammed and locked the door. Dropping the axe, he raced down the beach. Back in the hut, he could hear the prisoner kick and pound savagely to get out. But he knew that Groton, axeless, could not speedily crash that oak. And now the boy, running frantically, was beyond earshot of Groton. He saw a whaler out there, not far offshore, standing by to lower a boat. Ahoy! David shouted in a pitiful hysteria, jumping up and down, waving his frail arms. I'm here! He saw the boat coming. He collapsed in a faint then, on the beach. In a little while he heard voices. Rough men were grouped about him. One of them, in the uniform of a skipper, was kneeling by his side. What's your name, lad? David Jones, sir. He said. And where might your crew be? He's locked in the brig, sir. Then David, the cabin boy, handed the skipper a heavy brass key. David Jones, survivor of the doomed whaling vessel Norwal, has been set free. In the end, it was his stout-hearted loyalty to Skipper Quain that spared him from the terrible blade of a murderer's axe. All throughout his imprisonment here, 
in this frigid stockade of snow and ice. David held on to that singular sliver of hope, the key to his ultimate survival. Dawn has finally broken now, beyond the long cold night, where the winds of thin air have dispassionately served as judge, jury, and finally executioner. Episode 25 of the Thin Air Podcast Anthology, Long Cold Night, by Alan Vaughn Elston, was adapted for audio and produced, directed, narrated, and told by R.J. Lonsdale. The voice of the storyteller was performed by Thomas Ronan. The voice of David Jones was performed by Rudy Grayson, Groton by Jeff McKenna, Hale by Randall Owen, Casper by Bradley Caldwell, Skipper Quain by Billy McTeague, and The Rescue Skipper by Gerald Cliff. The voice of Diker was performed by R.J. Lonsdale. Audio production for this Thin Air episode by R.J. Lonsdale of Flyby Studios. Music compositions used in this episode include Martian Cowboy by Kevin MacLeod, Demented Nightmare by Darren Curtis, Vapna by Alexander Nakarada, and What Lies Beneath by Robert Austin Music, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0. This has been an R.J. Lonsdale Flyby Studios presentation. 